Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good to see everybody made it. I forgot that it was uh, spring forward which is very appropriate for our content today, waking up and going, why, Lord, why? Why do you cause such suffering? But we've made it, or most of us have. We'll pray for those who haven't, that for some reason still must use manual clocks to wake up or sundials or something that doesn't automatically uh, update and keep us in time with these ridiculous traditions that we have in this country. Um, <laughs> So welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm pastor here. Thank you, Daniel. Oh, and the Thomas Kincaid Cup. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Look at that. Oh, painter of light. Mm. Amazing. We're in this series uh, called Learning the Heartbeat of God. Um, and it's really neat. Like, even this morning, people were, were giving me reflections. Like, it, this sounds so silly, but to spend an enormous amount of time talking about what God is like sometimes feels unproductive, which is weird in a church, right? Because we're, I think sometimes we're so conditioned that, um, you know, it has to be, it has to be practical and applicable and, and, and talking about the way that God is, is too kind of esoteric and really hard to tie down. And, and maybe we should just talk about, you know, our finances or something like that's just way more practical. And I think there is a place for that stuff in church, but only in the larger context of us having the courage as people to talk about what God is like, to set the table, and then believe when we step into knowing what God is like and that we can encounter him here and now that he's actually going to show up. And I think a lot of times that's the real tension of why we don't do this, why we don't talk about God, or, or sometimes when it feels really uncomfortable to talk about what God is like, because it gives us this expectation that we're actually going to encounter Him. It's easier sometimes just to live according to rules and regulations and, and maybe tip our hat at God as we're passing by with those things. But I'm, I'm so encouraged to hear from you um, what you're learning about God, but not just what you're learning about Him, but how you're encountering Him in new ways. And I, I want more of that. I want us to be sharing with one another what we're hearing uh, about the Lord, what's impactful, but deeper than just the knowledge, that intimacy with God that we're striving after, to know how are you encountering Him? What's He doing in your life? What are the things that He's shifting in you and your perspective of Him, of yourself, of the world around us? And, and I, I didn't necessarily anticipate this, but one of the really sweet things I think the Lord has done is to tie in this journey of understanding His heart with this journey that we have uh, of the season of Lent, that last week, kind of the, the main uh, thesis of my message was that God's heart is to deliver us through the desert to freedom in Him. Because a lot of us have a cursory understanding of what God is like. God is love. Okay, cool, great. We're on board with that. And then it becomes a little bit more complicated when things in our lives seem to be not necessarily working out or we're confused or whatever it might be. So I almost want to uh, take that idea and bring it into this, this next portion. There's a lot of difficult ideas within our faith um, where it's difficult for us to reconcile what the heart of God is based on what our experience is in the moment. Okay, so we talk about God's love and his kindness, and then there's this seemingly other thing that we feel like is separate because we've never had those tied together that's like God's sovereignty and God's wrath and, and the idea of suffering and, and what we're going to be focusing on today with discipline. But what I want to do um, is actually start to bridge those things together to give you a complete understanding of the true heart of God that goes beyond being overly simplistic, like taking us out of our kindergarten understanding of God's heart to really dig into the deep stuff. And so today we're going to be talking specifically about discipline. And, it's, and I'm not talking about you need to be more disciplined, like come up with a plan of action and just try harder. That's not the discipline I'm talking about. I'm talking about when God disciplines us. And he's put a lot on my heart about suffering and where suffering comes from and how do we maneuver suffering as Christians. And we're going to get to that later. So just hold on to that bit. Uh, continue to stew over that. But I'm going to pray uh, and we're going to enter into our passage for this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, we do testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us. 
um, and even in, in that song that we just sang, Lord, that you are for us, and you are good, and you are kind, and you're attentive, and you're very intentional with us. You don't make mistakes. And Lord, some of us are coming in here today, and we're, we're like, we're swimming in that reality. We're like, yes, okay, let's go. Like, heart of the Father, we're in it. And some of us are coming in today with great fear and trembling. Because whatever we're going through, we're saying, God, there's these things that the scriptures say about you. There's things that preachers say about you. There's things that songs say about you. But I'm not experiencing that right now. And Lord, what I love about you is you bless all of that when we bring it to you, when we lay it at your feet, and we almost demand an answer. Lord, that sometimes you ask us in that desert to pick a fight with you, to shake our fists at you, to speak out our deepest fears and disappointments, uh, and you, you embrace us in that place. So, Lord, whatever we're bringing in with us this morning, give us courage, uh, first and foremost, to be honest, uh, but secondly, to be tenderhearted enough to still honor you and to be open to what you want to say, how you want to move. Uh, Lord, we don't want hard hearts. We don't want to shut ourselves off to you. We don't want to just merely accept things in our lives as they might be in this moment, but we want to genuinely encounter you, to be changed by you, and to see the growth in our lives that we take by faith you want to see. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be looking at this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 today. It's kind of towards the end of that letter. It's a really, it's a really powerful letter. It's written to specifically Jewish people who have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, which for them means the anointed one, the one who was chosen, but specifically to be God's king, God's representative. And then the kind of big surprise when Jesus came to Israel was not only is he God's emissary or ambassador, kind of in the line of King David, but he is God incarnate. This is God himself. And so the writer of Hebrews is using a lot of this Jewish imagery um, to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, who God said he was going to be, and that through the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, it, the fancy word is vindicated, uh, which means it proved that God was right this whole time. And so this is kind of the writer, uh, you know, finishing up her letter and, and giving them this encouragement to continue down the path, especially in this question, do we trust God's heart when it feels painful? Do we trust God's heart when it hurts? Do we trust God's heart when it's confusing or we don't have the right answers or our expectations are not being met? Do we still trust God's heart? Is there something bigger for us to be able to tap into with that? So I'm going to read this passage. You can read along on the screen so you can close your eyes and just allow the Lord to work through your imagination however you prefer. So the writer says this, In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. And so many of us are just like, yeah, that's real encouraging. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. That may or may not be true. We'll get to that in a moment. But how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It doesn't feel like God's love is very loving sometimes. And if you feel that, that's a good sign that you're awake. Okay? That is a good sign that you're engaged, that you're involved. If you do not sometimes question the love of God, you're receiving something rather ignorantly. Because a lot of times the way that we've been taught to believe our faith is if we just close our eyes and squinch our fists, hold enough and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, and we just hold on to that and try to ignore the reality of our lives, that maybe that's going to be the thing that helps us to grow. But so often what happens is we begin to crumble because of the increasing pressure of life. But there's a way in which we can actually learn to become more open-handed, open-eyed, and to say, God, here's this thing that's presented before me, and it doesn't feel very true right now. So I actually need you to come to me anew and to reveal to me the thing that has always been true, but I have not understood it at the level in which I think you are. And I think this is why this is so hard for us to accept. I think it's because currently in our modern era, we are a pain-averse, feelings-led society. We are a pain-averse, feelings-led society. We've been trained to instant gratification, that whatever we need or whatever we think we need is a grocery store away or uh, an internet click away or whatever it is. There's this instant gratification for whatever we need. And I want to give you a little bit of a sociological backdrop so you, you know, if you don't like history, you can tune out now or you can you just come back in two minutes. But basically what happened is this big old thing called the Enlightenment. How many of you are familiar with the Enlightenment? It was generally a good idea, uh, but there were a couple things that kind of came out of it that weren't so great. And the main part of the Enlightenment is we can kind of achieve a lot as human beings through knowledge. And if we understand enough of it, we understand how the world works, then maybe we can grasp this thing called reality. And what happened in the Enlightenment, it was the first time in philosophy where human beings kind of moved away from, from God being at the center of our understanding of the universe to being about our own experience, about our own reality. And one of the little kind of counteractions to the Enlightenment was something called Romanticism. Okay, and romanticism, it was in philosophy, it was in art, it was in music, and, and, and romanticism was an action against enlightenment. Enlightenment was all about the intellect and the power of the mind, and romanticism said, no, there's beauty and there's all of these things, and romanticism became this movement in the 16th, 17th centuries um, that really started to guide a lot of mankind. Uh, but what happened after romanticism is that it kind of descended into what we call emotivism, Okay which is kind of the kid brother of romanticism. And this is what happened in that. Back in the day, if you had an opinion, and by the way, Richard Rohr says opinions are underdeveloped thinking, so ponder that one. If you had an opinion, you'd say, I think. You're engaging with somebody, you'd say, well, I think this. And they'd say, well, I think that. And I think you're wrong. And that's kind of how we interacted as human beings. But along the way, because of emotivism, we said what we feel is central to our understanding of reality. And we feel our way through the world. We feel our way into our identities. We feel our way into relationships. And so our language began to follow. And we stopped saying, I think this. And we started to move into, well, I feel this. And before long, what happened was the more we said, I feel, the more we put that at the center of this is what's true. And so feeling and truth became ensnared with one another. And whatever we feel, especially in the moment, became reality. And what we did was we turned feelings into something they were never meant to be. Feelings were never meant to be capital T truth. And I teach this a lot when we're doing, uh, when we're doing Enneagram work or we're in spiritual direction. Your feelings are incredibly important because they're information that is there for you to read. That's what it is. That's what a feeling is. And even, we can go even farther. You know what pain is? Pain is a whole lot of data coming at you faster than you can process it. Right? That's what pain is. Something hurts because there's way too much information being sent to your brain. And you kind of jump from it. But your feelings are information that's meant to be read. And so when we have that proper posture with our feelings, feelings are really good. We should not bury our feelings. That's kind of where some of us live. We bury our feelings and we ignore information. But it's also not the other extreme where feelings equal truth, that whatever I'm feeling in the moment must be my reality. 
We have to find this sweet spot in the middle where we're reading our feelings and saying, what is this feeling trying to tell me? And unfortunately, emotivism has bled into church theology. It's bled into the way that we perceive God and reality and ourselves. That whatever we feel about God, whatever we feel about the world, whatever we feel about ourselves in the moment must obviously be truth because that's the the greatest teacher. But as one of the Enneagram teachers I love, Suzanne Sabeel, says, your heart and your mind will lie to you, but your body never will. And I think that's so powerful to recognize that so often our hearts lie to us. How we feel is actually lying to us if we do not put that information in its proper place. And so when we come to this idea of God disciplining us or, or the pain and the struggle in our lives, it matters, because, that question matters, do we trust God's heart when it feels painful? Because it begins to speak to us what we feel about God's heart, what we feel is true about him. And oftentimes we find it on this spectrum. Either we have this idea of God's sovereignty, that God is all-powerful, therefore God is all-controlling, therefore everything that is happening is with intention, and we say, if it hurts, then I'm being punished and God is not good. And that's kind of one side when we allow our feelings to guide us. If it hurts, if I'm uncomfortable, if there's pain, then I must be being punished for something and God is not good. Or we try to convince ourselves, I'm being punished, God is good, therefore I probably deserve the punishment that I'm receiving. That's kind of one end of the spectrum in church theology. Or we go to the other end and we say, this hurts. God doesn't want me to feel any pain, so I must run away from the pain. So kind of in in church denominationalism, we could say maybe the hyper-Calvinist idea is this idea that, you know, if if it hurts, I'm being punished, like maybe God is good, maybe he isn't, but we can't really reconcile that, so we just kind of keep that split. But then sometimes in the charismatic realm, we say, oh, we're not supposed to feel any pain. God doesn't want us to have pain. God doesn't want us to have tears. God doesn't want us uh, to feel these kinds of feelings, and so we must run away from those feelings or ask God to deliver us from the feeling. But what happens in either of those scenarios is that we ignore the information that is there for us to read. Not about truth, but about our current reality. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're finding yourself in one of those two scenarios. Either you feel pain and therefore God is not good because how could a loving God allow you to feel pain? Or God doesn't want you to feel any pain. If you feel pain, you're doing something wrong. Or you're just supposed to run away from the feelings and only choose into the quote-unquote good feelings. And I've told many of you, and you've looked at me rather incredulously, there's no such thing as good feelings or bad feelings, okay? There's no such thing. You should be writing this down, by the way. This is, I'm handing you liquid gold. There are not positive feelings and negative feelings. There are only feelings, okay? And when we tell ourselves that thing, we're telling ourselves something about the nature of the universe. And so I think it's important for us to be sensitive to how we deal with pain in our lives, how we, uh, you know, maneuver our feelings so that we can be a little bit more open-handed when we begin to talk about something that is a very complex issue. Because the reality is, as the writer of Hebrews is telling us, God disciplines us in the here and now to become more Christ-like over time. God disciplines us. Again, I'm not talking about your discipline, you just trying really hard to be a better person. I'm talking about when God disciplines you in the here and now, in this moment in your life, so that you can become more Christ-like over time. What does it mean to be more Christ-like? It means you look more like him. It means you look a little bit more like God, the God that is revealed in Jesus. Another way we can say it is that you come back to your true self. If God is rescuing us, bringing us back to full humanity, Jesus is the embodiment of what that is. And so when we talk about righteousness, which is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, our righteousness is essentially um, us wearing Jesus as our true identity, our true self, is that we look like Jesus. And this is what's so hard about this passage in Hebrews, that so many of us were not disciplined well as children. 
You know, I think the writer maybe almost takes that for granted and says, well, you were all disciplined by your fathers and you respected them for it. And we're like, eh, no, not really. We haven't necessarily been disciplined well as children. And I'll get to why in a moment. But a lot of times what happens is we take that image of father or mother and we project that onto God. And we see a father or mother in the earthly reality in our pasts that did not discipline us well. And we assume, well, God must just be like that, but just times a thousand. And this is why it's so important that you, in your journey with the Lord, get in touch with how you were raised, your family of origin. Because all those little messages that you picked up as a little child of what love looks like, of what discipline looks like, it matters. Because whether you realize or not, you're going to subconsciously project that onto God, and then you're going to subconsciously project that into your relationships, not least of which is your marriage, but also into your own children. This is why it's so important that we do the work with the Holy Spirit to engage in our own stories and realize what's being triggered within me that speaks this smaller story, this lie about what God is actually like when we enter into these things. And that's the necessity of us redeeming that idea of what God as a father looks like. Because we need to recognize that God as a father in our lives means he's invested, he's present, he's attentive, and he's sensitive. And see, even some of those words for many of you, when you think back on your earthly father, if you even had one, they don't match. Maybe your father was distant and disinterested. Maybe he was punitive. Maybe your father was angry and abusive. Maybe your father was too soft and wasn't really present when you needed him most. This is why it's so hard for us sometimes to engage with the truth of Scripture. Again, because our feelings are guiding what we think is true. But this is what I've learned about love. The Father's heart towards us means we are both fully accepted and we will be changed. True love means total acceptance and total transformation. And the way that you interpret love from the way you grew up generally is going to fall into one of those two categories. You may be accepted the way you are now, but there's no expectation that you're going to change. And if we tip too much into that world, it becomes negligence. That you can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want, and there's going to be no consequences to it. But we can go to that other side where there's so much of an expectation that you have to change that it ends up becoming performance-driven love until you measure up. Until you behave yourself, then you can't really receive the love that you so earnestly desire. But true love lives in this creative tension between both of those things. And that's where we find the Father's heart, that God accepts us fully as we are today. But God also knows that his, when we receive his full and complete love, we will be changed. That we will transform. Because if we allow ourselves to be truly loved, we are not the same as we were the day before. I think that's a really good way for you to measure if you're truly allowing yourself to receive love. In, in all of your earthly relationships as well as your relationship with God, are you, same, are you the same as you were before you were in the relationship? If you're the same person, either you're not receiving love or you're not letting yourself receive love. Because love, by necessity, means we are going to change, we're going to transform. And the way that we put that in the Christian faith is that we transform to look more like Jesus day by day. He is the template for what it looks like as God is transforming us and helping us to grow. And I think this is the reality when we're talking about discipline in our lives, which is that total acceptance and total transformation. Spiritually mature people do not oversimplify God's discipline. If you remember when you were a little kid and you were being disciplined, perhaps you said this to your parents, if you loved me, you'd let me do what I want, right? How many of you called that line out? Or your parents were disciplined, you're like, ugh, they hate me. I, I ran away when I was 10. Did you know that? Christy, I don't think you even knew that. I ran away when I was 10. Because my parents did not love me. They would not give me what I wanted. And I ran away from home for 30 minutes. And I came right back. How many of you are the oldest? 
your entire life was an experiment. <laughs> because you crossed boundaries that nobody else knew was, were there. And I got the whole gamut. I remember being four years old. We were still living in Belfast, walking down the street. This is a very you know, busy city, and I just walked right out in the middle of traffic, ho-hum, and my mom grabbed me by the leg and just gave me a whooping right there in the middle of the street. I remember getting soap in my mouth once or twice. I remember having to go out and choose your switch, like all these like weird things. And I, I remember, some of you will appreciate this, you know, my father, I remember one time, I was probably about 12, and she said, just you wait till your father gets home. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I gotta remember that man ever being angry at me in my life. But when we're little, and that's what's happening, is like there's this discipline. We're kind of, especially for the oldest, we're kind of bumping around, figuring out what are the boundaries, what are the expectations, and so many of them are unspoken. This is why it's important that we're going through our own stories and perceiving where we might have um, those little um, almost prejudices when we talk about this concept. But when we're little, that's just what we believe because we're little narcissists. All children are narcissists. And, but and many of us are still too, honestly, right? And your narcissism when you're, I see some parents going, mm-hmm. <laughs> when you, your narcissism works for you when you're little because you're figuring out your place in the world. So you just interpret everything coming at you through your little ego because your ego is helping you to figure out how do I maneuver through the world? How do I protect myself? Who am I? And that's fine when you're five, but not when you're 25, not when you're 35, not when you're 45, not when you're 55. And so often what happens when we talk about the Lord's discipline is we're still interpreting those things through this oversimplified childish view. It says, well, if you loved me, you just let me do what I want. If you loved me, you just let me get away with it. If you loved me, you would never discipline me. So I want to offer you a couple uh, visual images, some metaphors that might help us to understand what it means for God to discipline us. Oh, my goodness, I have to go quick here. So my folks were here uh, for six weeks uh, from the beginning of the year, and we bought this house together a year ago. It's a lovely house. Really appreciative. Many of you have come and seen it. And you see this lovely big bush in the front? Uh, I've kind of trimmed and cut that and learned how to do all that stuff over the past year. And they came back in the beginning of January, and like the third day that they were here, I came home, and this is what happened. It was gone. And it's like, what did you do to my bush? Because they had mentioned like, oh, we're going to trim it back. It's getting a little bit overgrown. And I come back and I have sticks in my yard <laughs> and about three weeks worth of like leaves and, and branches that had to be taken out to the front. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you've killed this thing. Like you killed this bush. What am I going to do? And, and as it went on, this is what, you know, this is kind of the result of what happened in my little yard, and we kind of started to model some things around it, and, and they chopped up those other little bushes in the front, and they pulled up all this stuff, and I'm like, this is devastating. But this was the fascinating thing that I noticed just over the first couple of weeks. Um, go to the next one. I actually sent this to Christy one day. I was looking at this stick, and there's these little tiny green buds just coming up just randomly, in the, not even like on the tips on the middle of these sticks, and I've been watching it over the past several weeks, and it started to bloom again. And it was, I, I, it was just mind-blowing, because I, you know, I trimmed these bushes. I cut them back a little bit. But to see that dev, seemingly devastating action towards this bush in my yard, and the reality was it was getting old and craggly, and it was bumping up against the house. There were hornets living in it. Like, it was a mess. And it starts to come back, and it's, look, is there, any, was there one more? Is that it? Is that the last one? Um, it started to come back, and, and, and last week, I was just kind of out there doing yard work and kind of observing the, the beauty of these little branches, and the Lord was speaking to me through that, and he said, this is really what it looks like for us to be disciplined. This is the difference between punishment and discipline. We use this language of pruning. That pruning hurts. Can I get an Amen. Pruning hurts. And sometimes when God is pruning you, there's like nothing left. You're a bunch of sticks. But it's necessary for the long-term health of the plant. That we look at it in the day that it happens and we go, it's over. <laughs> this bush is gone. But over time, we begin to see this new growth, this new health. And even Jesus talks about this in John 15 when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine. 
And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And this is what I think discipline really looks like. You know, for me, it's just been this idea that, you know, we read in the Old Testament of God will take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, which sounds so beautiful and romantic, but as Jean Vanier reminds us, when we say a heart of flesh, we see a heart that is capable of being hurt. And I thought when I was a kid, you know, growing up, you become stronger and you become more capable and you become more resilient as an adult. And I found that that's not always the truest case. For example, there's a, there's a movie, let me just use a very simple example. It's very basic. I, there's a, there's a, uh, a movie director that I really love. When I was in college, I watched a lot of his movies and I just thought they were so awesome and they were so well-written and they were so like awesomely violent and all of these different things. Like, really great storyteller and this guy continued to put out movies and I realized a couple years ago he had put out a film and I actually had to walk out and I couldn't finish it because my heart hurt. You know, and I was like 20, like just eating it up. Like, yeah, this is so awesome. I love this. And then I'm like 30 and I'm like, oh, I can't do this. And they put, they put out, I think maybe like two films since then. And I'm like, I can't, can't handle it. And it feels weird. It's like, no, I should be as an adult able to do what I want, be more resilient, be able to take these things in. And I'm realizing, no, actually, the more I grow, the more I have this tender heart. And I think that's so often what the Lord's discipline looks in our lives is when the reality happens where our hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. We realize that we could do anything that we want, but when we do whatever we want, it begins to hurt. There's this little voice in the back of our minds, we call it our conscious, but perhaps it's the Holy Spirit that's beckoning us to a new way of seeing things. And it feels so contrary to what we think about what it means to become older. And so maybe there's something in your life right now, even in this Lenten journey that we're on, where you have the right to do it, right? Paul says that. I can do anything I want. Well, that's true, but not everything is beneficial. And you're slowly realizing the more you participate in that action or that thought process or whatever it might be, it's not fulfilling you anymore, and it's actually hurting you. And to recognize that perhaps that is the Lord's discipline playing out in your life. That it hurts. Because your heart is finally capable of feeling again. And so why does God discipline us? Perhaps in contrary to the way in which we were raised that might have spoken a very different story. God's heart in disciplining us is to help us to trust him more. And to set us free from the sin that entangles us. Several years ago, I was speaking to a friend of mine and she was going to, through something very difficult and she said, I don't know if this is Satan attacking me or God testing me. And it took me aback because I'm like, oh my goodness, shouldn't that be the most obvious difference in the world between the voice of God and the voice of Satan, the accuser? But as I started to talk her through it, I realized, oh, when we live out of emotivism, with what I feel is what, I, what is true, and then we project that onto the cosmic reality that is God and Satan. What often we tell ourselves is, God just wants me to feel good, and if it feels bad, it must be Satan. But let me tell you something. You ready? Are you listening? You should be leaning in. The second sweetest voice that you will hear in your ear is the voice of the enemy. The second sweetest voice you will hear is Satan. That he will entice you with the sweetest words. And we're very aware of the voice of the enemy when it comes to accusing us, making us feel guilt, making us feel shame, whatever he needs to do to separate us from God and from other people. But sometimes the thing he whispers to us sounds so sweet. Remember, that's how he's tempting Jesus. Do you want to be delivered from this? Do you want to be rescued? Do you want me to provide for you? If you just do this, I'll give you all of it. I'll make you feel good. And this is why we cannot maneuver the world just through feeling. But these are those deeper gauges, the more subtle way of understanding discipline in our lives, and especially knowing the source of it that might help us. The spirit of the Satan comes to accuse, steal, kill, and destroy. But the spirit of God comes to convict, diagnose, heal, and restore. And this is the difference between punishment and discipline. Number one, it's about trust. 
That's what we're looking at through this Lent season. God is inviting Israel in the desert. God is inviting us in the moments of difficulty to say, do you trust me when it gets hard? Do you trust me when it doesn't feel good? Do you trust me to provide for you, to protect you, to empower me? But the second thing is, is there a trajectory to the journey that I'm on right now? Because Satan doesn't want you to move ahead in your story. Because the more you move ahead in your story, the more liable you are to be active in the kingdom the more effective you're going to be. And so if he can halt your development in your story, if he can hold you to that moment of time where you were powerless or that you were accused or that you were distracted, then he's cut you out from being effective for God's kingdom. But in discipline, not only is God inviting us to learn to trust him more, but he's also saying, I'm giving you a trajectory that the thing that I'm doing right now in your life, the thing that I'm cutting out, the thing that I'm cutting back is so that you will grow more fully to be who I have called you to be. And God always gives us a trajectory for the discipline in our lives. And I think this is so important. If you're hearing condemnation, okay? And condemnation, again, is going to be motivated by feelings. You're going to feel this hurts, therefore I'm being punished. If you're feeling condemnation, keep listening. God always speaks hope over us, even if it's uncomfortable in the moment. I've taught this many times, especially when it comes to the prophetic. If you're only hearing a word of punishment or accusation, you have not heard a whole word. There's all these filters that you might be hearing the voice of God through that are telling you that, that it's about diminishing who you are as a person. But God does convict us, and conviction does not feel good. It doesn't feel good to be found out by the Spirit of God. But God always gives us this trajectory. He says, this is where I'm calling you. This is who I'm calling you to be. And that requires extra trust of us to believe that God is not just beating us up in the moment, but he's actually pruning us and cultivating us so that when we move down the story, we look more like Jesus and we're more effective for the kingdom. And that brings us to the second metaphor that I want to offer you, this idea of a surgeon. That a surgeon who's called in to remove a cancer. How many of you have had a major surgery or a minor surgery? I had my wisdom teeth out one time. It was brutal, but I made it, guys. I did it. They took them out. And I didn't go under. You know, we couldn't afford that, so I had to sit there. And, uh. But this is the fascinating thing about that. I'm going to use my story because, you know, I've never been under the knife. been under the needle and some pliers. There's this animal instinct in all of us, especially when we're motivated by feeling. As soon as someone walks towards us with a knife, what do we think about their intentions, right? Now, intellectually, we know they're here for our benefit. This is a good thing. But our animal instincts are going, this person is here. They're going to harm me. They're going to take my life. I and mean, we hear that time and again from, uh, from the position of surgery. That's why so often we have to be put under because we can't tolerate someone working towards us with a knife. It's this instinct that we have for self-preservation that keeps us from the person that has their knife in the hand. And so often what happens when God comes to discipline us, it's that same animal instinct for self-preservation, that we see God coming towards us and he's got a knife in his hand, and we believe that it's for our detriment that God is trying to punish us, but we don't realize that God is the great physician, that God is the great surgeon, not coming to attack us and to kill us, but actually to cut something out of us that is killing us. So the wrath of God, this is what we talk about in the, in the Bible, the wrath of God is not punitive that God is coming to beat you up. The wrath of God is the same as the surgeon's wrath against the tumor. All of God's fire and fury is being focused on this foreign object within you that should not be there and is slowly killing you. But your interpretation of the wrath is that he's coming to take your whole person down. And I think this is so important that God's, God does not cause suffering in our lives. God does not cause evil, but he does work through it to reveal to us who we really think that we are. And he works through it to reveal our sin nature by exposing what's in our hearts. It's very hard for us to read our hearts when times are good and we're comfortable. It's when things get hard, we begin to realize where are the idols in our lives? Where are the things that we run to in order to cope, in order to deal with pain that are not him? And so in those moments of struggling, of suffering, of uncomfortability, of yes, even perhaps persecution, 
the true nature of our hearts, our idolatrous hearts, is revealed, and God says, now I can do something with this. Now we've identified the cancer. Now we've identified the tumor, and I can get to work, but I need you to trust me that this is for your own good. I am not here to hurt you. Like I said, I want us to talk about suffering more later down the road, but I think this is so important for us to talk about in the context of discipline. Sometimes our suffering is self-imposed because we do not trust what God is doing in us. And we don't see the difference between our true self and our sin. When, when God, as the great physician, comes in to do the surgery, we don't trust his intentions, we don't trust that he's capable, or we don't see any difference between us and our tumor, the tumor of sin that has become part of who we are. And so when God begins the process of saying, you're hurting me, you're, you're taking this part of me, and we, we don't make the differentiation between who we are, who we've been called to be, and the, 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 as it says in the scripture, the sin that so easily entangles us, that becomes part of what we think our identity is. And our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters have an amazing way of talking about this. They say the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is always a fire. The action of God in the Holy Spirit is always a fire moving towards us. But how we respond to the fire of the Holy Spirit determines our perspective. So if the Spirit of God, which is his action of his love, is moving towards you and you resist it, it becomes this burning fire. Not because that's the intention of God, not because that's the intention of the Holy Spirit to hurt you, but you're fighting against it and you're resisting what he's trying to do within you and that fire burns you. But when you relinquish yourself to the Holy Spirit, to the fire of God, that you submit to it, it becomes this refining fire a fire that burns and purges all of the impurities out of you so that you can be, as the scriptures tell us, white as snow, so that you can be this full and complete and whole and precious thing that God has caused you to be. But how you respond to the Holy Spirit's work in your life is determined by your perspective. Do you trust him that he is good? That when you come through it, you're going to be more than what you were before. And that God does not come to steal, kill, and destroy. But he does come to do something that convicts us, yes, but brings hope and healing and restoration. Because the thing that God is cutting out of you is your ego fixation. That, that childish nature that you had that said everything's about you and, and you have to feel your way through the world. And not realizing that that's the thing that's enslaving you. That's the thing that's keeping you small, that's holding you back from living into who God's calling you to be. I think this is maybe the final thing that I want to say about discipline, but it's so important. God wants to give us the why for the discipline in our lives, but we've got to learn to listen. God wants to give you the why. I do not believe that God does things in your life without giving you an explanation. I don't think he calls you to discipline without giving you the deeper heart of it. I don't believe that God says to us, like so many of our parents did, just because I said so. Just do it. Stop complaining. Stop asking questions. Just accept it. I don't believe that's the heart of God. But I do think what happens so often is that because we feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel condemnation, we actually shut off our ears to being able to listen to what God is wanting to speak to us about what he's doing because we assume that God is just punishing us. And I recognize in my life, my own stubbornness to give up the things that I know that God is calling me to, to learn how to trust him more, causes me not to seek or to ask. Or maybe I'll go through the motions but on some deep level, I don't really trust him enough to explain the why of discipline. And when we miss the why, when we don't allow God to give us the vision for trajectory, and we only judge him by what we're feeling in the moment, we shut ourselves off to hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the truths about good parenting, that our, a good parenting means our parents discipline us, but they always explain the reason. You realize when we're little kids, we don't make connections between cause and effect. That's not a natural thing. And when I was a, when I was a teacher, 
a high school teacher, we talk about that a lot with our students. We could tell students that grew up never being taught cause and effect. They do something and they just get swatted for it. And so they grow up and they become, you know, 14, 15 when I'm dealing with them and they're not really understanding there's a connection between what they do and the consequences. But good parents always explain their discipline. This is why this is happening in your life, but this is where I'm inviting you to go. And so we have to trust in that, that God is not merely punishing us, but he wants to make the connections. He wants to help us to grow. He wants to give us a vision for who we are becoming. You still with me? Is that heavy? It's okay. It's okay if this is heavy. Because if we're going to talk about the heart of God, we have to move past that very oversimplistic version of who he is that helps us to escape the reality of our lives and begin to ask those deeper questions that are us walking deeper into the truth of who he really is. Because I think this is what's so powerful about understanding the true heart of God. That you and I, we worship a God who was obedient unto death for our sake. You see, we don't, we don't worship a God that's distant, that's asking us to go through something that we haven't gone through. But we're worshiping a God who has participated in every pain, in every season, in every temptation that you and I go through. But he did it perfectly because he knows that we're not going to. But he also invites us to be patterned after him. Let me teach you through my Holy Spirit to walk through temptation to walk through suffering, to walk through pain so that you might become more like me when you follow through on the other side. There's this powerful moment in the story of Jesus, the human one, the divine one, where he is wrestling with this idea of what God is doing in, our, in his life. It says in Luke, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Okay? So Jesus is suffering. He's asking the Lord, God, I, I'd love for this thing to be gone, but ultimately it's about your will and what you're asking of me and not just how I feel in the moment. An angel comes to strengthen him. What happens after the angel strengthens him? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The angel strengthens him, and he's still in anguish, but he prays more earnestly, and he begins to shed blood even then. Going back to Hebrews, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And it says, when Jesus rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is not a God who is unfamiliar with suffering. This is a God who gives us the courage to bear the trials of a broken world by his same spirit. And this is the trajectory that we need to endure, to ask those questions of God. What am I to become? What are you making of me in this season? What is this going to look like when you're done with me? And I think one of the most powerful places that God begins to answer those questions is at this table, when we come forward, when we take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus, the God who suffered alongside of us, who faced everything that we did, who shed all of his ego, who shed all of his need for self-preservation, who shed his oversimplistic ideas of God would never want this to happen to me and was obedient even to death on a cross. And when we participate in Holy Communion, in the Lord's table, we're participating in that suffering. But we know that suffering is only for a season and what God will bring us to is far greater than anything we could imagine for ourselves. As Paul says, we know the suffering we experience in the present time is nothing compared to the glory that he has in store for us. So I want to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite you to come forward to, to take of the table. But what I want you to, before you do, I want you to take that moment with the Lord and to say, God, I need vision. What are you, what are you creating me to be? Where are you taking me? What is this discipline in my life? 
what is it leading me to become? As you're pruning me, do I see the difference between who I really am and my sin nature? And am I willing to give that up to you? My idols, my false senses of security, my false senses of who I think you are and what I deserve to receive from you. Do I trust you enough when it hurts to come forward, to receive your body and blood from the moment in which you hurt the most? And as you come forward, I'm gonna invite you to give in these boxes of your tithes and offerings to receive the body and blood of Jesus. And we're going to worship together. Not only that, but I wanna invite all of our leaders and elders to go to the back and maybe God is stirring something up within you and you need someone to pray over you, to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to strengthen you. Because maybe you don't believe that you're strong enough. But if God is for you, who can be against you? And so after you receive the sacraments, I invite you to go back and to receive prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to move beyond these oversimplistic ideas we have of what you're like, how it feels to be a human being, what our feelings tell us about you, all of those untruths. When our, when our image of you falls short because things get hard, we want to lay that at your feet to say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. I trust that you are good, even though it doesn't feel like it. And Father, as we come forward in faith to give and to receive, would you do something in our hearts, turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that can feel again, so that we might receive the healing presence of the co-suffering Jesus. For though he was equal to man, he did not consider equality something to be taken advantage of, but rather he made himself nothing for our sake. And he was obedient even to death on the cross. And may we be patterned after that image of God. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do whatever you see fit in this room. Pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come forward. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.